Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Joining us today to continue with the CIO Strategy Snapshot conversation, glad to welcome back Jason Dreho, Head of Asset Allocation Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. Jason, good morning to you. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us. A lot to catch up on since we last spoke, so looking forward to our conversation. Morning, Dan. Yes, it's been a very eventful uh, past few days. A lot to discuss today. Absolutely. I do want to point out up front to our listeners, Jason, that we will be making reference to the most recent UBS House View. Uh, That was authored last week and does provide an updated outlook of what this chief investment office expects in the U.S. as well as other parts of the world for the balance of 2022. Uh, That piece, by the way, now available up on UBS.com forward slash CIO, a year of discovery continues. Though, to your point, Jason, we have seen some extraordinary moves across financial markets Uh, just in the past few trading days. That accounts for movements in currencies, interest rates, as well as, of course, equities. So, Jason, can you summarize for us some of this price action and maybe highlight the factors that you think are driving it? Well, let's just start with FX because that's probably the most prominent story right now. Uh, Since uh, last Monday, over the past five trading days, the U.S. dollar as a basket, is up about 4%. So it continues, the dollar is going to relentless climb higher against other currencies that we've seen over the course of summer. But in some ways, the, the pairs on the other side of the, the dollar appreciation that are most prominent, uh, you know, the, the British pound is the, the biggest example. Uh, it fell from about 114 uh, to the US dollar about a week ago to as low as 1.05, uh, you know, in early morning trading yesterday. It bounced back just a little bit. But these are very dramatic moves. You know, to get that kind of move, like almost a 10 percentage point move in a currency in the course of a week, this is you know, typically only happens when you have massive currency crises in, in emerging market countries. It also means that the pound uh, is, is low against the dollar basically since early 1985. So we're talking over 35 years, um, the lowest it's been. The euro also depreciated. You know, it's now at uh, you know 96 cents to the dollar. Uh, you know, so it broke for a while it's hovering around parity, but kind of broke lower. So you've seen dollar strength, other currency weakness. If you then pivot to the rates market, some very dramatic moves higher over the past week in, in yields. You know, the 10-year Treasury is up about 40 basis points in the past uh, week. Uh, yesterday was around 3.92%. That's where it closed. It is down about 10 basis points. Uh, you know, this morning on Tuesday morning. Uh, even more dramatic is the move higher in real interest rates. So if you can extrapolate out the uh, the inflation component of those yields, the 10-year real yield was up uh, 32 basis points yesterday, even though the, the 10-year, the nominal, was up much less than that. Uh, it went up to 162. For context, just to put this in perspective, the 10-year real rate was at 8 basis points in early August. So it's about 150 basis points higher in the matter of about seven weeks. So very, very dramatic you know, moves. Um, if you look at gilts, which are the, you know, the, the UK equivalent of treasuries, you know, gilts, their yields were up 80 basis points over the course of uh, just a few days from late last week to early this week. Equities in some ways seem like they're relatively mild in the class. Uh, the S&P 500 is down 5% over the past week. Uh, you know, so a decent move, but considering the size of these moves, especially yesterday, the, the rise in real rates, the fact that the S&P was only down a little over 1%. Uh, it was almost surprising given that dramatic movement in rates. And now we're seeing again this morning uh, you know, equities bouncing back. Why is this happening or why is it so extreme? Uh, well, you start with the Fed last Wednesday. Uh, it hiked 75 basis points as expected. 
but its dot plot and its projections were exceeding market expectations. It just sort of reinforced the narrative, along with a number of other central banks last week that also raised rates in the range of 50, 75, 100 basis points. That global, you know, globally, you're seeing central banks moving very aggressively to raise rates to try and combat inflation. But the idea that they seem to be driving forward, you know, almost irrespective of the potential economic costs, uh, and markets are kind of certainly reacting to that. The UK situation that's spilled through over to US and global markets is, is a very kind of specific situation regarding, uh, you know, a budget or mini budget they announced on Friday. They already gave guidance uh, with the new UK government under Prime Minister Liz Truss a few weeks ago to provide support to consumers to deal with very high energy prices. What they fleshed out further on Friday was some additional you know, tax cuts, uh, things to try and stimulate growth long term. But what it resulted in is a total spending that's about 4 to 5% of GDP. That's the estimate. Uh, and it's going to be largely debt financed. The Bank of England, like other major central banks, are raising rates and they're looking to shrink their balance sheet. So unlike during the pandemic when you had sort of coordinated monetary fiscal policy, governments would issue, you know, do a lot of spending, they'd issue bonds, central banks were there to basically kind of sop it all up by going and doing quantitative easing. That's not happening. So you have a situation where monetary and fiscal policy are essentially working at cross-purposes in the UK. You have fiscal policy that's trying to be stimulative and supportive. You have monetary policy and the Bank of England that's trying to tighten uh, and the more fiscal policy you get, it's almost like the more monetary policy tightening you have to get. Uh, some markets did not like that kind of combination, and that's why you saw very dramatic moves uh, you know, in the U.K. And as a result, it's spilling over to the U.S. and other markets because these are global bond markets. If suddenly you, know, you can get uh, higher yields in U.K. equities or, or U.K. fixed income, well, then your desire to buy you know, treasuries you know, is, is impacted. And the U.K. You know, guilt market is the third largest bond market in the world. So it's, it's size, it has implications. And on top of all this, because investors are so kind of apprehensive right now about the overall macro environment, the market environment, they're unwilling to necessarily kind of step in and buy. You know, liquidity is poor across most markets, certainly fixed income. When that happens, you can kind of get these big kind of gappy price moves because the prices just you know keep having to fall in order to induce buyers. So you get these huge you know kind of moves in, in one or two days in markets that you know you know are are less liquid than normal. Uh, so I think as, as things sort of stabilize, I think the bounce back today at least a little bit is suggesting you know maybe they found a floor. But those to me are the key factors. You know the central bank dynamic and the UK specific story in terms of their their fiscal and monetary policy essentially spooking the markets. There's a lot at play here, Jason. Thank you for that recap. Very helpful. Maybe sticking with central banks for a moment. Of course, we think about how the Fed in particular has been very influential to market behavior through the course of 2022. Looking back to last week, we did see the Fed raise rates another 75 basis points. The Fed also increased its guidance on the number of hikes it expects to do for the balance of 2022 as well as into 2023. So, Jason, does the chief investment office expect the Fed to hike as much as they say? And what could cause them to hike more or less than they're forecasting right now? So the, the Fed was very aggressive, and it's uh, not just the rate hike of certain high basis points, but in particular, the kind of the guidance of how much they would hike. So their you know, projections are that the Fed funds rate will be 4.4% by year end, which at the current level, it's between three and three and a quarter. So it implies about 125 basis points of additional hikes. Uh, I mean, something like 75 basis points in November and 50 in in December. Then it's a, a rate that would end 2023 at 4.8%. So another essentially one and a half hikes in that range for, for next year as well. That exceeded what the market was expecting, uh, you know, boost by a little bit. 
I say this because I think, you know, the, the Fed in some way had almost no choice or probably certainly felt compelled that it had to project interest rate hikes that were exceeding market expectations. Because if they didn't at least match what the market was pricing in, then it could be perceived as being dovish that, okay, the Fed's not going to be quite go as far. Uh, you know, this is, they're, they're a little bit concerned about the macro environment. They didn't want that to happen. That was the market takeaway at the end of July and into August after the July FOMC meeting that the Fed wasn't uh, sufficiently hawkish. As a result, you know, interest rates fell, equities rallied, financial conditions loosened. It's exactly the opposite of what the Fed is trying to do with keeping financial conditions tight to slow growth, blow trend, to bring down inflation. So they had to sort of do that, or they probably felt like they had to do that. So then if knowing that the Fed had to talk very tough, the question is, will they actually kind of go that far? Uh, ultimately, we don't know what the Fed's kind of reaction function or, or its tolerance is if we're starting to see economic pain, if the unemployment rate does start to tick up more significantly. Right now, the labor markets and the economy is holding up you know, reasonably well, especially the labor market, which shows you know, relatively few signs of, of cracking at this point in time. Will that continue to be the case if we start to see kind of real signs of weakness in the labor market? That we don't know. So I think that would suggest there's scope for the Fed to do a little bit less than what they've projected. Um, but the labor market may not cool enough by at least December for them to alter their, you know, their hiking plans relative to what they projected. By next year, you know, they will have certainly more months of data points to, to make that decision. Another thing that would cause them to potentially you know, dial back is you know, if inflation improves, uh, and instead of you know starts to kind of meet their objectives, and if it does so you know, relatively soon, you know that's certainly you know an open question whether that can happen. But there is the possibility that you know at least for the for the fourth quarter, October, November, December, the inflation data that we would get in the December one, we won't get until early January, might be enough for them to say, all right, it's starting to meet our objectives. So the things that we think that the Fed is looking at that really would sort of determine you know their their interest rate policy is looking at the current trend of inflation. So not year-over-year measures that are still going to be, you know, at least 5% or higher probably at the start of next year, but what is the three-month inflation rate over the prior three months? And if we're seeing sort of monthly rates of inflation on average around 0.2%, if you extrapolate that over a full year, that's coming out to about 2.5%. So that suggests inflation going forward will fall significantly from your very elevated levels and start to kind of get back, of course, to the, the, the Fed's target. So that's one thing to look at. And we can see that as soon as, you know, December or January. Related to that is, is what is wage growth doing? In order to get inflation consistently and sustainably around 2.5%, wage growth has to moderate back from 5.5% to something like 4% or even a little bit less. If we start to see that happening again over the next few months, that would give the Fed comfort that we're at least seeing uh, you know, wage inflation moderating. But that probably won't be enough. What they would also need to see is, you know, sort of balance return to the labor market. Because wage growth can moderate, but if there's still excess demand, you know, versus supply, if they sort of dial back and if they even eventually cut rates, it's very quickly that wage inflation can reaccelerate and we get the inflation problem back again, you know, a year or two years down the line. So seeing, you know, labor demand come down, something closer to supply. And right now there's basically two jobs open for every one person looking. It's like 11 million open versus five and a half million people looking for work. So those are the things that we would sort of look for for the Fed to alter its plans one way or another. So when it comes down to more or less, you know, if those things move in the right direction over the next three or four months, we could actually get a little bit less than what the Fed is projecting. If we don't see much signs of improvement on those data points, there's a decent chance that the Fed could keep going and go beyond what they projected to get up to 5% or, you know, and, and higher at some point next year. 
It is helpful, Jason, to hear about what considerations inform the Fed's course for monetary policy from here. The Fed, of course, a prominent risk factor, so to speak, not the only one. So, Jason, within and outside of the U.S., what are some risk factors that you're closely monitoring at the moment? Well, just with the Fed, you know, the risk is that they kind of go forward and keep tightening uh, aggressively you know, because they just don't have confidence in the inflation data coming down sufficiently. So even if it looks like it's trending in the right direction and all the leading indicators, including like in, in shelter and rental prices and home appreci- price appreciation would suggest that inflation by, you know, ne- next summer could be substantially lower, that may not be sufficient. So the risk is that they over tighten and they cause, a, you know, a, a, you know, essentially a policy error. They do more than is necessary and they trip the economy uh, into recession, potentially maybe a more deeper recession. So that's, you know, the most prominent risk. If we think about outside uh, the U.S., you know, turning to back to Europe, just what exactly happened in, in the U.K. over the past week is a good example of some of the spillover effects. The U.K. economy going into recession isn't necessarily going to cause significant problems for the U.S., but if that's the story for Europe and, and the rest of Europe sort of follows the U.K. lead, um, a slowdown in the European economy will have implications for the U.S. economy because there is certainly close interlinkages on trade. So that can sort of spill over in a negative way of slowing growth. Um, there is a flip side, though, to that, that it is sort of positive. If you see the global economy, you know, the rest of the world continue to slow and the U.S. slows less, that is sort of, you know, should bring inflation down as the demand for goods, demand for oil, other commodities comes down. So that would, you know, help the U.S. Like essentially the rest of the world getting kind of a cold could help actually the U.S. because it would provide a little bit of you know, easing on the inflation pressures. Same time, if it brings U.S. growth down a little bit, it slows the U.S. economy, that helps the Fed, all of which could lead to the Fed to sort of dial back sooner, all else equal. Now, that's sort of, you know, you know the, the sort of the silver lining of that whole dynamic. In the interim, though, as the markets worry about a global slowdown, they will kind of price that in. Uh, and so the negative implications spill over to the U.S. And that's exactly what's happened in the past few days with the problems we've seen in the U.K. If we also then kind of go beyond Europe, think about, you know, Asia, Japan last week was was also got a lot of tension in the markets because there's concern that the Bank of Japan might loosen up their monetary policy. They're the one major central bank that has basically done nothing to tighten monetary policy. They still have a yield curve control where they intentionally try to keep the 10-year JGB or the Japanese bond contained below 50 basis points. There's speculation that maybe they would have to ease that as, as the uh, inflation rises even in Japan. Um, the question is when that might happen. They also might need to do that to support the Japanese yen because the yen has fallen to 145 against the dollar, so it's very weak. Um, they don't want to get too much weaker. And there's even reports last week the Ministry of Finance in Japan intervened to try and slow the decline. There's not much they can do if the Bank of Japan also doesn't help. And frankly, if the momentum for dollar strength is that, so it's what they can do. But you're seeing sort of, again, same thing in the U.K., where on the fiscal side, they want to do one policy and the Bank of Japan wants to do a different policy. And when that's not coordinated, it's less effective. So there's a concern that, you know, the Bank of Japan at some point could abandon that policy. If they do, yields in Japan go up and it's going to spill over into the U.S. because the Japanese bond market is the second largest one in the world. So that's another external factor that that, um, could certainly have implications for for raising rates in the U.S. If that happens, that further slows growth here. This ties into another factor that there is, a, you know, given the dollar strength, there is sort of increasing demand globally for essentially U.S. dollars, you know, sort of as a bit of a safe haven flight into U.S. cash. Um, so there is a risk, and we've seen this in the past for the past 15 years, where sort of a flight to safety, a flight to dollars can cause kind of liquidity stress. It raises the concerns in financial markets about systemic risk. 
meaning stress in one market to fund can spill over to other markets. Uh, so it can kind of cascade through. So it's a little bit of, you know, you know, you get a ripple of waves over in the Western Pacific and that kind of, you know, builds and kind of, you know, flows across and it impacts us here as well. You know, the extreme risk is that, you know, you know some of the fixing markets start to seize up and a liquidity problem starts to become a solvency problem. This is partly what happened during the financial crisis uh, and why it was so severe. And we've you know, been receiving some questions whether could we repeat something like that. It's very unlikely simply because on the private sector, for the balance sheets and leverage are much better today than they were back in 2007 and 2008. So we shouldn't have the, the credit problems, the fundamental problems of, of defaults. That doesn't mean, given the size of the debt markets, there couldn't be certainly some systemic risk that would cause at least financial market stress and some problems that would spill over with maybe less limited in economic impact, but the financial markets would certainly fill it for short periods of time. And the final thing I would just point to is that you know, the issue in, in Ukraine is, doesn't appear to be going away anytime soon. You know, last week, Russia and Putin you know, escalated by you know, announcing they would call up reserves. You know, it sounds like you could increase your activity there. So I think it's you know, the scope of some sort of resolution in the near term looks very unlikely. Uh, and then in China, just in terms of their economic growth and their outlook, I think the hopes of any kind of pickup in activity in the near term is, is unlikely. It could be still kind of trudging through you know, well into next year. So in the past, sometimes China's kind of helped the global economy by stimulating. We're not really seeing a lot of evidence that they're really kind of picking up activity right now. So you add this all up, um, the global slowdown, central banks tightening uh, broadly, the risk of systemic problems, all these factors you know, will impact at least U.S. financial markets maybe more so than than the U.S. economy at this point in time. So there really seems to be a substantial and wide-ranging, for that matter, list of risk considerations. With that all in mind, Jason, you did share with us your outlook a bit earlier. What does this mean for financial markets in the near term, near term meaning the balance of 2022, and as we look into 2023, perhaps the first quarter? Well, I think the safer thing to say is that volatility is going to continue. Well, we'll continue to have very choppy markets. The overall kind of paradigm that we've had for markets this year is with central banks and the Fed kind of leading the charge to uh, fight inflation, sort of deal with a, a very tight labor market that's overheating. They want to slow the economy. They want to tighten financial conditions in order to bring inflation down. As long as they're in that mindset, it's going to be difficult for, for risk assets to really you know, have any sustained rally. We saw one in the summer, and then we're back to the, you know, the June lows on the S&P 500. So that dynamic is not changing. In the very near term, it certainly felt like, you know, over the past week that the markets are, are getting increasingly kind of creaky as, as you look at some of the move, very big move higher in rates. Um, there's certainly a risk that things could overshoot. So, you know, bond yields go higher than they should, equities sell off more than they should, some of the currencies fall more than they otherwise should, just again, more because of lack of liquidity. Uh, you know, last week I wrote a blog titled Breaking News kind of making the case that it feels like in the markets, investors are waiting for something to break in order to, to, for, for markets to break out of the range that they've been in for the past you know, five or six months. And either that's for inflation to break really lower, for the labor market to break down, or ultimately essentially financial markets to kind of break down and really then kind of potentially have kind of cascading effects into the overall economy. The price action of the past few days kind of feels a little bit along those lines. So that's the environment that's likely to persist for the time being. That's a lot of bad news, and we've covered also those other risks, but I think there's there are things that would be, you know, give a little bit more reason for some sort of optimism, at least from a market perspective. Uh, you know, I think there's a fair amount of negative news that's already kind of priced in. Uh, if you're trying to estimate what the market is pricing in for, say, for earnings growth, and I'm, I'm talking about equities, it's already likely pricing in earnings cuts and, you know, or negative earnings growth next year, even though consensus forecasts are still calling for about a 6% EPS growth. 
So those cuts made the materials and the luck that materialized, but in terms of what the market's pricing, I think a decent amount of negative news is already kind of reflected to some extent. So it would take another, a clear sign that we're going to not have a you know, mild recession, but a, you know, a harder recession for equities to go down, you know, much more significantly. Another factor is that sentiment has become very bearish uh, and positioning among investors, certainly institutional investors has lightened up. Similar to what we had back in June, in the middle of June, and then, you know, of course, in the summer we had two months of risk assets kind of rallying together. I'm not saying that would happen, but when you have sentiment that's so poor and people sort of protected the downside, you see a lot of people buying put options to protect the downside. I mean, they've already sort of done what they need to do to kind of weather the storm. They don't necessarily have to sell. And if there's any kind of good news or things that are maybe a little bit better than expected, they can sort of, you can have a more asymmetric move where markets move higher on a little bit of decent positive news versus going down on negative news given how much is already kind of you know, priced in. But this still is kind of within the context of this and paradigm of the market being very choppy, volatile, kind of range bound until we start to see clear signs of inflation improving and the Fed and other central banks able to sort of dial back some of their, their hawkish rhetoric. So I think the near-term dynamic stays the same. But if you look out, you know, 12 months from now, I think it's, it's with more confidence we could say the Fed is likely to stop hiking uh, they may not have cut yet, but they can clearly be closer to than you know the first hike, and the market will start to kind of price that in. That we've kind of moved past the worst of the inflation story, the worst of central banks, and now the question is when do we start to kind of you know, recover? So I think on a 12-month horizon, the outlook is better, but in, in the next few months, it's a very kind of difficult, you know, kind of choppy environment. It sounds like Jason, to your point, there volatility near term is here to stay. There is a lot of uncertainty in the markets amongst investors, and in consideration of the list of risk considerations you shared with us a few moments ago. With that all in mind, Jason, how are you recommending that investors position in this environment? So, a few kind of broad ideas that we you know, recommend is you know don't make sort of large directional bets at this point in time. Uh, you know, given the difficulty of forecasting, you know, when inflation could could alter. Given some of these, you know, broader systemic risks, it's difficult to say how they could play out. So you don't want to get, you know, you know, constructive at the same time. A lot of, you know, decent amount of maker news is priced. Getting overly bearish uh, and reducing risk, in, you know, significantly, um, is, you know, has its, you know, it has its consequences. I often tell people that if you do want to sell equities, if you want to go into cash, you also need to have a plan as to when you're going to get back in. Because if you choose to sell now, things could lower. But then, you know, on any sort of news of, of the central bank or the Fed sort of pivoting. Markets will come back very quickly, and by the time you kind of get back in, things have kind of already rallied, you know, to the past level at which you sold. So, keeping that in mind, what we're suggesting then is more broadly in your portfolio, you want to do things like you know, add some more defensive positions, you know, be defensively positioned within your equity allocation, uh, within fixed income, kind of go more up in quality. You can get income now without taking the same kind of risk you did before because you can buy high quality short maturity, like less than three years, investment-grade corporate bonds, they give you more than 5%. So you don't need to go and take a lot of risk to get actually income at this point in time. Uh, we still think, you know, value should outperform growth stocks. As rates stay high, that's all single that's better for value than for growth. Uh, and ultimately, you know, the valuation differences between the two are still quite extreme. And we think that will kind of play it over, over time. But I think there's also, you know, ways in which you think about if this macro environment persists, we have to find strategies that can help diversify portfolios because what we've seen just in the past week is both bonds and stocks sold off. So thinking about, you know, alternative strategies, things in private markets, hedge funds that can provide sort of different sources of return that are a little bit more uncorrelated. Um, and then for longer-term investors, I will say that, you know, as, as valuations come down, as prices come down, there is opportunity to value. Even UK equities are a difficult environment right now, you know, but their valuations are very low. 
and you know, it's a region that we actually like, in part because the valuations are very low. 80% of their revenues are basically generated outside of the UK. Uh, they may not rally anytime soon because people are very reluctant to go into UK assets. But from a long-term perspective, they actually look you know, somewhat interesting. So I think it's also try to look through some of the near-term norms to see if there is opportunities out there. Where do you want to selectively add to your portfolio in ways that, from a long-term perspective, can add value? Uh, and potentially also add a bit of diversification to the overall allocation right now. Jason, very wide-ranging, productive conversation this morning, and thank you for ending there with some valuable guidance for our listeners, investors, on how they should consider positioning uh, given this volatile, uncertain environment. Again, I do want to point our listeners, especially our clients of UBS, to the latest UBS Houseview Investment Strategy Guide. That title, again, is Year of Discovery Continues, which is now available up on UBS.com forward slash CIO for clients of UBS. Of course, reach out to your financial advisor to receive a copy of the UBS house view directly. Though, again, we've been joined this morning by Head of Asset Allocation Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, Jason Dreho. Jason, thank you again. Always appreciate it. You're welcome and have a great week. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer. 